Welcome into Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay, joined again by best-selling authors Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert of Birch Run Financial. Gentlemen, congratulations on the recent award and great to be with you. Thanks, Jag. Great to be here. You know, it's an exciting time. Summer's about to start. Our kids are wrapping up school, so, uh, so, so all is good. And thank you for mentioning the, uh, the best-selling author award, but we should throw in the caveat that it was a category bestseller on Amazon, which doesn't take 50,000 copies to, uh, to get to. But we're very happy with the response. People have been enjoying it so far, and we're in the process of sending a whole bunch out to uh, people who've requested it. So we're looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing more people read it. We, uh, we had so much fun writing it, and it'll be good to hear the response. Mastering the Money Mind, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And with that, we'll get into today's topic, which is kind of a fun one for you guys. You might have to walk me through some of the more technical stuff here, but we're going to have some fun today. These are flops. These are some of the investment products that you've seen over the 20 years the two of you have been doing this that don't really turn out as planned, right? Over the course of our careers, we've seen a lot of different investment strategies come and go. And some of them have been kind of wild and outlandish. Some have been relatively tame. But by and large, there's always something new and exciting out there and some things you have to be careful about. So we did have a good time preparing for this. Uh, I think Ed mentioned that it felt like a stroll down memory lane. So yeah, it it, it, it sure did. We you know we sat down, we went through the different sort of things we wanted to cover today, and reminisced a lot about a lot of these things and how people need to really be aware of what they're buying and think it through. We've seen every permutation. I mean, some things are you know just too good to be true. Some are extremely complex, and some are very opaque or illiquid. So we'll be talking about a few of those today, and uh, it, it should be a fun discussion. And like any good podcaster, you've got notes and an outline prepared before we started recording. So I've got the list here. We'll dive right in. Tell us about if I have if I'm saying this right. Tell us about negative amortization mortgages. Okay, so negative amortization mortgages or neg am loans. What they were, and I say were because I don't even think they exist anymore, but they were mortgages where you had options as to how much you would pay each month. Okay. And these types of mortgages effectively sunk a number of subprime lenders in that 2007 to 2009 period. So essentially, a borrower's monthly payment, if they chose could be less than the interest on the loan each month, okay? Whoa, okay. And what would happen would be if the total balance on the mortgage, because if you're paying less than the interest, the balance actually grows, right? Right. If the balance eventually exceeded a certain stated amount in the contract, that option would go away and it would revert to a traditional 30-year fixed loan. So here's an example. Let's say in 2006, you borrowed $200,000 for a $200,000 house, because Mm -hmm. at that time, a lot of people weren't putting any money down. And we remember that in our mid-20s, right? Yeah. And what would happen would be if the loan reached a certain level, let's say $225,000, because you were paying less than the interest each month, right? Yeah. At that point, it would revert to a 30-year fixed loan. But what would happen is that the people who were making this so-called minimum payment that was less than the interest every month, there's a reason why they were doing it. They were doing it because they couldn't afford the the, the 30-year fixed loan rate, right? 
Okay, so let me, I'm trying to understand the mindset of someone who would do this, where they would take out a loan where there's more interest growing than what they're paying every month. And is the theory here, I guess, if you're doing this, you're kicking the can down the road of like, hey, I can't afford the fixed rate now, but maybe if I just buy myself some time, I'll be able to down the road. Is that why people did this? That's right. Some people thought, hey, you know, I can get into this house and I can afford this at some point, right? Mm -hmm. And the creators of these loans thought, well, there's, there's very little risk because these real estate prices will keep rising, right? So mm -hmm. if, you know, if John Gay's mortgage grows to 225, I mean, it's not a problem if his house goes up to 250, right? We're all protected. Okay. But guess what happened? Loan grows to 225 from 200, right? Mm -hmm. And the home value drops to 150. So now you're sitting on a house that's 150. You can't afford the mortgage payment. <laughs> And you walk away. And homes were foreclosed on. And we all remember that one very well, right? Yeah. Now, in retrospect, actually not even in retrospect, at the time, the concept of a loan in which the balance that you owe actually grows as you make interest payments is, is unconscionable to us, right? Yeah. But like I said, the theory at the time was home prices will rise faster in the loan balances so everybody would be okay people's incomes will grow over time they would be able to afford you know those payments later but in the end those loans turned out to be a total train wreck for the borrowers as well as the financial institutions financial institutions don't make out if you have to uh, you know foreclose on your mortgage right you know they're owed $225,000 they inherited asset after they go through court and all of that that's worth maybe 150 and you know they're they're lucky if they recoup 50 cents on the dollar when all said and done so negam loans were an absolute disaster just a, a horrible idea you know you got to do is watch any news coverage from that crisis in 2008 or so so i guess the theory would be for the bank side of it if they have to foreclose on the home and there's 225 owed on the mortgage but the home's worth 250 they can take that 225 loss and they'll turn around and resell the home for 250, right? Yes. And, you know, banks always build in some likelihood of foreclosure. And quite honestly, the uh, percentage of loans that foreclosed were many, many times higher than what the banks estimated when they were lending the money out. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, you know, all those factors together caused the collapse of a number of institutions that, that made a, a lot of these loans. And a couple of the names are actually very, very well known. Yeah, absolutely. You can remember them from the headlines, mm -hmm. you know, 14, 15 years ago. And I, I've been doing this with you guys for three years now, and I can understand how your heads would explode at the idea of a loan where the balance is growing and you're not paying enough on yeah. it. That's just, just wow. Our financial value sets are, you know, relatively conservative when it comes to borrowing money, as well as, you know, esoteric sort of borrowing strategies, let's say. Got it. All right, let's tick off what's next on our list. Alex, financially engineered strategies and some of the risks involved there. Financial engineering is, in my opinion, a fascinating topic. I mean, I love statistics and math and spreadsheets, and I've never met an Excel file that I don't like. So <laughs> when, I, when I'm tasked to criticize a strategy like this, it's a challenge, but I'll, I'll do my best. So much of what we saw in this area with financial engineering centered around backtesting strategies and then applying that backtested principle to current investments. But there's a catch to this idea. And I'm gonna pose this question, and it's somewhat rhetorical, but what's the first disclaimer that we often see at the bottom of any investment material we look at? 
It's very simple. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Right. So you can't rely on how a strategy performed in the past to predict how it performs in the future. Now, long-term trends are valid as a reasonable uh, statistic to project forward-looking results. But these strategies were put together by cherry-picking the, the absolute best performers over a 20-year period and just assuming that those stocks or whatever the investments were will continue to outperform. That's a very, very risky way to invest. We call it a bandwagon approach. Yeah. You find what's been doing well and, you know, just assume it's going to keep doing well. So think about, you know, tech stocks during the, the late 90s. You know, they were doing extremely well and, and until they didn't. Uh, think about home prices from 2004 to 2007. They were doing extremely well and, until they didn't. Right. So some of these specific strategies that we saw about you know, 15 years ago or so, they looked amazing on paper. And the returns they were promoting were, I mean, astronomical. I mean, double what the average, you know, balanced portfolio or even the broad stock market did over this period. So th these were promoted as, you know, the best ideas because they, they had done so well in the past. And of course, when we followed them in the future, they completely blew up and uh, <laughs> it didn't, didn't work at all. So about 10, 11 years ago, I decided to explore this idea, essentially to point out we can use any past data to create a strategy that outperforms, even if it's wholly unrelated to the economy or the markets. Okay. And I, I had an intern with me. Uh, this is, I think it was 2011. I had an intern with me and we were able, he and I were able to find an incredibly strong predictive correlation between public health data, a number of cases of, uh, of certain illness reported in the state of Nevada, and the future performance of the Japanese stock market. <laughs> I know, it, it, it's, it's seemingly completely unrelated. <laughs> And even I, who designed this experiment in the first place, who knew at the time that there is absolutely no way that these two data points are connected, even I kind of questioned, you know, is there something that could explain this that does relate these two data points together? And of course, you know, there wasn't. The strategy worked almost perfectly for the past period that we looked at. I mean, of course it did. We we were cherry picking data. Yeah, yeah. But as one would expect, it did not continue to work. So our advice when it comes to any of these more complex engineered strategies, especially that involve backtesting, is just to be cautious when somebody says, we've backtested this strategy and it works very well. Well, you can backtest a strategy that worked very well. There's <laughs> no guarantee that it will continue to work very well. Now, that said, backtesting is useful. It's useful to evaluate a strategy that you're putting in place prior to backtesting. So you don't want to cherry pick numbers and create the scenario from the backtest. You put together a strategy that you think is appropriate, and then you backtest. You go the opposite direction. And that can be helpful for predicting how volatile something will be during a period of time or how the returns will go, assuming the market goes a certain way. Uh, it's useful, but it's definitely not the only answer to that question. And it is unequivocally not a panacea for creating an investment portfolio. So be cautious with backtesting. 
If I'm understanding you correctly here, Alex, you're saying that a lot of these strategies are using the past to predict the past, but they can't predict the future. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's, a, that's about as concise as you can get. All right. <laughs> I can definitely see the danger there when you talked about all the cyclical natures of different types of investments of, you know, the housing market, the dot-com bust and all that. That's why we always talk about diversifying in, the, uh, in this podcast. Back to you, Ed. Next one on our list, bonds and debt products that have extremely high yields. This is one we've seen a lot over the years and probably always will. One thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to bond yields, there is no free lunch, okay? (laughs) If something pays a higher fixed interest rate than the current market rate, there is a reason associated with it. And that reason is usually extra credit risk, okay? Uh, So the first thing to keep in mind is that all bonds are loans, okay? mm -hmm. So if you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, you're lending money to the U.S. government. You buy a corporate bond, you're lending money to a corporation, municipal bond, a municipality, so forth and so on, okay? And the better the credit rating and credit quality of the borrower, the lower the interest rate charged for a given maturity length, okay? Mm -hmm. Just like individuals, same deal. So here's an example for you. The 10-year treasury bond rate right now is about 3.4%. And treasury bond rates are often called the risk-free rate because the U.S. government will never default on its debts, right? It could print money to pay you if need be. So with that rate at about 3.4%, any interest rate on a bond with the same maturity above that 3.4%, that difference reflects some sort of default risk, okay? Okay. And the higher the yield the higher the default risk. So let's say if a 10-year bond right now pays 5.4%, that's 2% above the treasury rate, right? That 2% risk premium is to account for the possibility that you may not get all of your promised interest payments, that you may not get all of your money back, right? Mm -hmm. And so with fixed yields... And loans, which bonds are, remember this, if they could borrow somewhere else at a cheaper rate, they would. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run from anything that pays a yield higher than a treasury bond. We're not suggesting that. But understand there's a reason why, right? If something is paying you know, 5% higher than the treasury bond rate. And guess what? There's a reason for that. It's almost like the opposite of, you know, when you are a person borrowing, if you're going to try to get, you know, a mortgage or a car or something like that, and they, yes. run, your, and they run your credit report. Same concept. And they say, okay, well, this person's got an 800 credit score. They're pretty low risk of defaulting. We can give them a lower rate on the interest. Yes. This person has a 400 credit score. Yeah, we better give them a higher interest rate to account for the risk that they might default and may not pay this thing off. That's exactly correct. So, you know, as the lender now, when you buy a bond or or make an investment into a fixed type product, you have to keep that in mind. That's really good advice. All right, next, Alex, illiquid and opaque strategies. What are they? And give me some background here. 
We've seen many of these as well, and illiquid just means that assets can't be sold to cash or changed into something else during a certain period of time, or you're limited to how much you can change from that investment uh, during certain periods. Opaque just means that the underlying holdings are essentially invisible to the end user, or, or very difficult to see at least. So think of things like hedge funds, private equity, private real estate trusts, managed futures, all of them fall into that category. And there's several risks associated with these types of investments. Mm -hmm. First, it's very difficult to change an allocation in response to changing needs if a significant chunk of the composition of a portfolio is impossible to change. And as much as we preach the idea of staying the course with an investment strategy and ignoring day-to-day -day fluctuations, sometimes a change in strategy is appropriate. And if you've locked up 10% or 20% of your liquid assets in something that you can't sell or can't change, your allocation may not remain in balance given the situation that you're in. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So that's the first issue. And generally, that's a pretty minor one as, as long as you keep the dollar amounts low and the percentage is reasonable. Um, second, some of these strategies' opacity, their, their tendency to be uh, difficult to decipher, is downright disingenuous. Hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about something we, we saw several years ago. We read about this private real estate trust. It's a fund that invests in apartment buildings and uh, commercial properties like you know, strip malls and shopping centers and things like that. Okay. And it was paying out a very high yield. Uh, I mean, significantly higher than, than the risk-free rate that Ed talked about. And just as Ed said, a yield that's much higher than the treasury rate is higher for a reason. So out of curiosity, I looked into the trust. I actually contacted the marketing department uh, to find out that they had not actually bought any real estate yet. <laughs> so this was a fund that was taking in money from investors, and it didn't own any income-producing properties. Wow. But they were paying out a dividend. That was something like 9.5% if memory serves. So they're paying out a 9-something percent dividend, but there was literally nothing generating cash flow. Yeah, how does that happen? Where does the money come from, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's the question. <laughs> when I asked the, the marketing person about it, he explained to me that a line of credit had been established for the purpose no. of paying out the dividend until the <laughs> properties were bought. Oh. So think about that for a second. Wow. Does that sound like a sustainable strategy? This is where the emoji of the exploding head comes in. The yeah, and, and when, when I heard that, I just about fell out of my chair. And as, as it turns out, it was not a sustainable strategy, <laughs> and the real estate trust folded a few years later, and I think most investors got back 50 cents on the dollar or something yeah. of that nature. And illiquid and opaque investments aren't always bad, because there are lots of funds out there that lock money up for a period of time and, and don't want others to, you know, to be able to dig in to see what, what they're investing in. And they're perfectly legitimate, and they, they invest in what they say they're going to invest in, and they do a great job. But it's difficult to invest in something you don't fully understand. Yeah. So our advice around that is before you make any decision, especially with an investment that's, that's opaque or illiquid, but true for any type of investment, do so with open eyes. Yeah. Know what you're getting into, and if you can't see what's inside something, and you have to lock the money up for a period of time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. You just have to factor in those risks when you're making your decisions. 
Good advice. All right, next on our list, Ed, this is a term that I've heard before, if you can dig a little bit deeper on it, fixed indexed annuities. Sure. So, you know, we're not really fans of these types of strategies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are unsuitable for everybody, right? Again, you got to do your research, but this is how they work. So first of all, a fixed indexed annuity is an insurance product issued by an insurance company backed by the credit of that insurance company, their ability to, you know, kind of pay out what they guarantee you. So you get the performance of an index, let's just say the S&P 500 each year, as an interest credit, usually without dividends included, so just price change. If the stock market declines in value in a given year, your interest credit for the year is zero, but you don't see a decline in value, okay? And in exchange for never seeing a decline in value on a year-to-year basis, there's a maximum rate that you can earn. And that was usually like 7% in a given year. Okay. So essentially, if the market rises by 6%, they give you 6%. If it rises by 7%, which equals the cap rate, you get 7%. If it rises by 20%, which is more than the cap rate, you only make 7%, okay? Ah, okay. But if it declines by 10% in a given year, this index, let's say, again, the S&P 500, you don't see a decline in value. So essentially, in this example, your return in every single year is somewhere between 0% and 7%, okay? Okay, you're locking in a min, you're locking in a max, okay? That's exactly right. A fairly limited range of possibilities. Mm -hmm. There's another type of annuity that, you know, kind of fits in with this called a bonus annuity. That's usually a fixed annuity where people just need to watch out for as well. These are annuities that generally have long surrender periods, meaning you have to hold them for a long time to guarantee a profit for the insurance company. Same as with the fixed indexed annuities. And what happens is when you, you, you buy one of these things, you get an upfront bonus, right? Let's say 5% or 6% or whatever it may be. Give them $100,000, 5% bonus. They put $105,000 in your account, okay? Got it. But then after that bonus, the interest that you earn fluctuates from year to year. But the trick is knowing two things. One, how will the yield fluctuate after you get the bonus when you're locked into the thing for, let's say, a decade or whatever it may be? Um, you know, what's it based on? so that you can calculate your long-term expected rate of return, including the bonus, which is what really matters, right? Yeah, yeah. As well as how long do you have to hold the thing if you decide you don't want it anymore without incurring a large penalty? And, you know, before jumping into either types of these products, it's important to look back over the past, let's say, 40 years or so, and see how these algorithms actually would have fared year to year versus a balanced portfolio, or in the case of the mm -hmm. bonus annuity, uh, versus a traditional fixed sort of investment, right? And this gives you a, a good idea if these you know, great promises are actually worth it or if they're too good to be true. And you, know, you either have to do this homework yourself you know, to, to make a smart decision or work with somebody who's very knowledgeable in that area that you can trust to do that homework for you to explain these sort of things 
before you actually get into them. Got it. All right, next on our list, you knew we were going to cover this. We're going to come back to present day, Alex, and talk about crypto strategies. Ah, uh, cryptocurrency, the 21st century version of tulip bulbs in 17th century Netherlands. Uh, it's an interesting topic. We covered that in a previous podcast. You can go back and check we, it out. We did, we did. And and crypto is a a very divisive topic, and, and I'll, I'll do my best to be objective in this. An investment in something like cryptocurrency is based on the shared belief that there is value in the asset. There's no actual fundamentals or, or technical strategy you can use. There's no asset that really backs it. It's just, it has value because people believe it has value. Much like fiat currencies like the dollar, the euro, the yen, etc., there is no actual value, but rather the agreement that a currency has worth and can be used as such. The difference, of course, is that fiat currencies, like the dollar, are backed by the governments who issue them. Yeah. And price stability can be, to some extent, maintained through policy action. Crypto, on the other hand, has no backstop of that nature, so it's significantly more volatile than pretty much every other investment out there. And some of the well-known cryptos are much more stable than others. But we've read examples of some hot new cryptocurrencies or you know, what they call them, uh, initial coin offerings being released and then promptly collapsing to zero. Yeah. So w w there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago about a, a surgeon who put most of his life savings into some hot new crypto that did exactly that. Oh, no. It was a complete failure and he lost everything that he put into it. Mm. So, as with any investment, it is important to understand the risks associated before making a decision. And objectively speaking, the risks with crypto are absolutely massive. In our opinion, it's just not a gamble that most people should take. But if you do decide to dip your toe in that water, treat it like a gamble because in most cases, that's what it's going to be. You might do well, but the odds are you won't. And that's just something to be aware of. I will say uh, there was a popular cryptocurrency, I won't mention it by name, that they ran a Super Bowl commercial and they said, hey, if you sign up for this app, we'll give you 15 bucks free in this cryptocurrency. And I said, well, sure, 15 bucks. And I keep getting notifications, down 50%, down 50% recording this on June 15th. I'm like, okay, well, if my 15 bucks is down 50%, it's 750. It's, you know, or if it goes down 100%, it's 15 bucks. It's like losing a hand of blackjack in Vegas. But <laughs> I can't imagine exponentially multiplying that for it to be, like you said, the surgeon's life savings, seeing those percentages and having that equate to thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's very sad that, uh, that some people do fall victim to this. And in many ways, it is essentially them being victimized by the people who are marketing this stuff. Any type of investment like this, and I even hesitate to call it an investment because it's yeah. not really an asset, but anything you put money into, especially something like this, you have to do so with open eyes and you have to accept the fact that there is a massive amount of, uh, of risk associated with it. All right, Ed, this next one, I'll try not to butcher the pronunciation here, viatical settlements. What are those? Okay, so essentially, viatical settlement uh, investment funds are products that are bundled life insurance contracts purchased from people while they're still alive. Okay. So an investment fund will buy life insurance policies from people that already have policies in place, 
give them a discount to the face value, right? Because they're getting the money now when they're alive. Make the premium payments for them and collect the death benefit when they die. Okay, so, so let's say theoretically I'm 75 years old. I have a $500,000 life insurance policy. I can sell that at some discounted value to one of these funds and get my money now. Let's say it's 400 grand or something like that. Just, just theoretically, okay? Sure, yeah, okay. That investment fund will now continue to pay the premiums on my life insurance policy until I die, right? And then take the death benefit and pay that out to their investors, okay? Ooh. And what they do is they pull a bunch of these together in a fund. So besides being a very, very creepy investment, right? Yeah. Where Ugh. you're better off as the investor if the people who sold you the policy die as fast as possible, right? Oh my God, you're not kidding. Ugh. You run a lot of financial risk that kind of is below the surface. You run the risk of the average person in a pool living a lot longer than expected. If that happens, your money can be tied up for a very long time. Yeah. Your long-term returns can be low or even negative. Let's go back for a second. Let's talk about the $500,000 policy, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say they calculated that, you know, I'm 75, I'll live to 85. If I live to 95, that could be a loser for them. Okay, yeah. From an investment perspective, right? So, What are you thinking living that long, Eddie? Come on. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, these are, you know... I think they're very, very, well, both of us think they're very creepy investments. I'll co-sign that and make it all three of us. There are certainly risks involved too. And oftentimes people get in, end up putting their money in these types of investments or they don't really know the risks oftentimes. Maybe they're not explained to them or they're looking at, you know, a high expected rate of return or they're scared of more traditional diversified market-based portfolios. But nonetheless, you know, these are something you need to be very, very, very careful about. All right. So on one side, you've got investing in these. Then you've got the people themselves who sell their return for, in, in some way, a, yes. a quick buck, which, you know, you're essentially saying, hey, I'm going to sell this to you because you're betting on me dying. Yeah. And I guess if you need the money, you know, if you got this life insurance contract in place and it's like, well, if they're going to give me, you know, Going back to this example, four hundred thousand for my five hundred thousand dollar policy. I need the four hundred thousand, and I could use it while I'm alive. You know, kind of why not? But you know, then it gets thrown into this fund, and you know, for all intents and purposes, the fund is hoping I die. That, that, that's that's weird. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you on this one. It, aside from the obvious financial peril involved. It just creeps me out. Very so let's so. wrap up our list with something totally different. Uh, Alex, how about just products and strategies that are completely and totally fraudulent? Well, those are the ones that are the most important to avoid for, for uh, many reasons. And in most cases, it's pretty easy to steer clear of Ponzi schemes and things of that nature. Um, things to look out for, any product that's offering a significantly above market return might convince a, a neophyte investor to part with some of their money, but most people who've been around the block for a while and, and been investing for most of their lives or even part of their lives, they have some sense that a 20% guaranteed rate of return isn't realistic. 
uh, because it's not. Uh, as Ed said before, if, if there's something that's promising a higher than average yield, there's a reason it's promising that. It's either ultra risky or if something claims to be no risk paying that type of return, that's a huge red flag. Yeah. But occasionally, a fraudster will come up with a marketing message that's it's like the Goldilocks number. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's, it's just right. <laughs> and the most famous Ponzi scheme perpetrator pretty much of all time, apart from Ponzi himself, who, who the scam is named after, <laughs> is, uh, is Bernie Madoff. Of course. And Madoff was perhaps the best example of marketing a Ponzi scheme correctly. And his deception... It lay not in the returns he was generating, but rather in the consistency of the returns he was generating, or or rather claiming to generate, because he wasn't actually investing any money. (laughs) Right, right. He never claimed to be able to crush the market every single year. He never promised 20%, 30% returns. He he never said, uh, you know, we're always going to beat the stock market. He just promised a steady, consistent, competitive growth rate of maybe 6 to 8% a year. And Madoff had a long run, or at least he claimed to, again, because he wasn't investing in anything. Right, right. He had a long run without a down month. You know, he had years, decades of returns where he never lost money in his fund in a single month. And I'll say this, generating 6 to 8% per year has been and likely will continue to be 100% possible with the right asset allocation. But doing so without a single down month is pretty unlikely. Yeah. I mean, it's just an outlandish level of volatility for a return that's that competitive. Yeah. If you're generating half a percent a year with no down months, that I might believe. But if you're, if you're doing 6 to 8% a year without ever having a down month, that's, that's ludicrous. And in the end, it all boils down to that transparency issue. If you know what you're investing in, your results are much more likely to match up with expectations. And opacity, or you know, the fact that a portfolio, you don't know what's inside it, it can have a legitimate purpose. It can shield a portfolio manager from competitors' prying eyes, but... It can also shield fraudulent activity from investors and regulators. Ah, yes. And most investments out there, whether they're opaque or transparent, most investments out there are legitimate when we look at things objectively. Some legitimate strategies are opaque and illiquid for a reason. And that's okay. You just have to go into that type of investment with open eyes. It's absolutely essential to look deeper into a strategy before making a move. Seeing what Madoff was promising, the past performance that he had, that reasonable return with that level of consistency, that's incredibly attractive. But anybody who had any knowledge or understanding of how the the capital markets work would see that objectively and say, how is it possible that he gets a return that's this consistent. Not that's this high, but that's this consistent. So we fall back to this emotional decision-making. When you see it, it seems so appealing that, you know, that combination of greed for the return and the fear, anxiety about volatility, you see that sweet spot that he's created and it just seems so attractive. Making investment decisions, and we've said this so many times, Making investment decisions based on an emotional response is nearly always the wrong thing to do. 
You make your investment decisions and, and all the moves that you do financially, make them with objective data, make them with a rational approach, understand what you're buying, and you'll be much better prepared financially. I think I mentioned this on a previous episode. I had a mentor early in my career who said when it came to marketing, people make decisions based on emotion and find facts to justify those decisions later. So the key to any good marketing is appealing to somebody's emotion. And that's why you should be aware of all these marketing messages. These cliches are true. No such thing as a free lunch. If something appears to be too good to be true, in all likelihood it is. You got to stick to the tried and true ways that Alex and Ed have talked about on this podcast for three years now. So if our listeners want to come talk to you guys, I know you're always willing to have a conversation with somebody with no obligation. Best ways to find you. You can always find information about us on our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com. You can email us at the general box that we have. It's info, I-N-F-O, at birchrunfinancial.com. Or if you prefer the old-fashioned way, you can just give us a call. Our office number is 484-395-2190. As Jag said, we are always happy to have a conversation, and we hope we can be helpful. And Ed, real quick, we'll put it in our show notes, but the name of the book, the Amazon category bestseller? Mastering the Money Mind. Perfect. Always a pleasure, guys. A fun trip down memory lane here. We'll talk to you next month. Yep. Thank you, Jag. Thanks, Jag. Always a pleasure. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James is not guaranteed that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with your appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against a loss. Keep in mind that not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered representative of the U.S. stock market. A fixed annuity is a long-term tax-deferred insurance contract designed for retirement. It allows you to create a fixed stream of income through a process called annuitization and also provides a fixed rate of return based on the terms of the contract. Fixed annuities have limitations. If you decide to take your money out early, you may face fees called surrender charges. Plus, if you're not yet 59 and a half, you may also have to pay an additional 10% tax penalty on top of ordinary income taxes. You should also know that a fixed annuity contains guarantees and protections that are subject to the issuing insurance company's ability to pay for them. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Birchland Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Birchland Financial is located at 595 East Sweet Street Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.